Welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part 16 of the Gate of God series, and we'll be wrapping up with a title called The Exorcism of the Nations. There are seven stages of empire. America has leveled up, careening around stage four, past stage five, and we don't really fully realize it yet, but we are already leaning over the cliff of stage six. So what are the seven stages of empire? There's the age of pioneers, obviously long past. The age of conquests, obviously long past with manifest destiny reaching all the way to California and beyond. Then there's the age of commerce. The fourth is the age of affluence. The fifth is the age of intellect. The sixth is the age of decadence. And the seventh is the age of decline and collapse. So everyone gets excited about the coming decline and collapse. Um, but let me be the one yelling that all is well. A century ago, if you'll remember, the Austro-Hungarians were the winners. And now their capitals are lovely little tourist stops on a river cruise. So we are going the natural progression, the route of how the city of man goes, which is to collapse into decadence and, well, eventually decline and collapse, just like what happened at Babylon or Rome. In fact, in our arrogance now of denying God, we have worshipped and enabled the demon powers to guide us, and thus the nation must be reset and humbled, and that is basic spiritual physics. That's how and why it works that way. We will go this path because the decline must play out. It must. The last season must come. The cycle is not anything new or surprising, or it shouldn't be, as Plato wrote about this process long before uh, Edward Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Collapse of empires gone wild is as old as human writing itself. And the reason why is because people lose focus on what's important. So we are in the last days of Babel, unless something dramatic happens. Um, and it's worth noting how we got here and why it's happening. But this fall of empire is really not something to worry about because it is inevitable. The loss of your soul, however, is not inevitable. And for that, you have a choice that you can make. Free will is the great gift from a God who will not coerce anyone to follow him. The real question for our time is, how will you endure this phase? How will you persevere? How will you stay sane? And how can you stand strong when the world starts to burn around you? How? The answer comes from Jesus when he says, by your endurance, you will gain your soul. So you never take your eyes off of the truth. You never look away from Jesus when the wind comes up on the water. Never forget your own sinfulness. Never forget your need for redemption, for a savior. Never forget why the cross had to be the way and never look away from his love for you. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, and by his ascension, tunnel your gaze to that truth. That is how you endure. When Jesus said that a follower of him must follow him and even hate his own father and mother, his own family, he meant it. Because if anything can sway you to look away, to make you turn back to something of this world, then you have not endured and you will not gain your soul. 
there is only one way to stay sane and sure, and that is to never look away from the truth of him. Today's president of the United States is tomorrow's dust. There is only one who rules the kingdom and wields all power and deserves all glory. The Tower of Babel is a warning about a bad way of thinking for a nation or a people. The rejection of God at a social level where sin is selected as policy is the problem in Babylon. Empire alone is not the problem. The word empire is not bad, just as the word sex isn't bad. However, it all depends on what the thing is used for and how it's used. The story tells of everyone speaking the same language in the Tower of Babel, but language in this case, again, does not necessarily mean grammar and vocabulary. You can read it that way, but there is another way to think of language, and that language here means worldview. And the worldview that is a problem is the one where money, honor, power, and pleasure become virtues, replacing actual virtues. The language of Babylon is that of most of our modern thinkers, from Thomas Jefferson to Karl Marx, David Hume, John Paul Sartre, Michel Foucault, right up to Ibram X. Kendi. They don't understand the concept of universal original sin. They don't understand that sin is real. They don't understand that excessive righteousness is a problem. The language is the denial of sin and the rejection of God in favor of man's tower, whatever that tower might be. There's a fundamental difference that everyone misses between Catholic theology and other solutions like liberalism, Marxism, Protestant theology, liberation theology, prosperity gospel, modernism, postmodernism, and all the other isms. The problem isn't people or governments. The problem is spiritual, and we are in a spiritual war. We have been in the spiritual war since the first two humans met the serpent in the garden. Genesis does not disagree with science as much as people like to think. Even on an evolutionary path, somewhere along the way, two people's genes were altered into something radically different from all other creatures. We know we have a soul, and to deny it is to deny half of who you are. Just as the Big Bang matches with let there be light, and as archaeologists keep confirming biblical geography locations, and as the last ice age coincides with the ubiquitous worldwide stories of the Great Flood around 9000 BC, we know through reason that something changed with humans that separated our way of life and worldview from Neanderthals. The desires of humans have no bottom. They are bottomless pits. They cannot be filled. There is a darkness in humans that does not exist in apes or any other creature. Thoughts and ideas come to human brains that make no sense and serve no purpose aside from evil. And that is what the spiritual war is about, is keeping evil at bay. If we fail to fight the spiritual war, we lose track of the problem. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, the devil embodies whatever we are looking at. If we see government as the solution, then the devil moves there. If we see sexual identity as the solution, the devil goes there. If we become too fixated on the church as the solution instead of as a means to holiness, then the devil will occupy that space. The enemy is cunning and shifts shape, always waiting for you to forget about him. And the number one enemy in the spiritual war is pride. And that is why it's so telling that pride is celebrated as a virtue today. 
when in every possible case of hubris, pride leads to destruction, always, invariably. Every fairy tale, Bible story, fable, and even in stories like the Titanic or the Theranos fraud, pride always leads to destruction. Even in Mark McGuire's and Sammy Sosa's home run chase, pride led to destruction. There's just no other outcome for the balloon of pride than to be deflated. It is a fact that even pure rationalists understand what goes up must come down. The interesting thing is this. If we wonder why God allows this evil, you have to realize this key secondary effect. To be reborn in the spirit, you have to go all the way down. God allows us pride in order to find our way to the truth and be deflated and be reborn. Pride is the language we costume our ideas in using intellectual arguments about how to organize an economy or how your identity is oppressed. Um, getting what you want when you want it and how you want it is what is considered good today. The unofficial virtues of America are those advocated by Gordon Gecko and the Marquis de Sade. The Marquis says, let us give ourselves indiscriminately to everything our passage suggests and we will always be happy. Conscience is not the voice of nature, but only the voice of prejudice. That's an actual quote by the Marquis de Sade. Um, as for helping yourself to all things, Gordon Gecko says, greed is good. This language is all over our culture. Uh, here's one from Vince Lombardi, sports god. If winning isn't everything, then why do we keep score? Here's the UCLA coach, Red Sanders. Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And so say we all. That's kind of the, the motto of our country. Competition and money and self-justification are the vocabulary and grammar, the pillars of the American language or worldview. That is how we speak. It's what we respect. It's what we aspire toward. It's what we aim our children at. It's how we measure success. It's how we measure someone's worth. For us, competition is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is the utter opposite of the message of Jesus Christ. From Luke chapter 16, he says, You justify yourself in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is of human esteem is an abomination in the sight of God. It's very clear that the things we chase are not what Jesus values, and that's not what God values. In other words, the Lombardi Trophy is an abomination, as is Gordon Gecko's or Trump's or Bezos' wealth. Mark Zuckerberg's billions of dollars and his users will be used against him in the court of God. Trump will have to answer for his gold toilet seat and various wives. Michael Jordan's championship rings will be gravel to be tossed aside. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos may be first in line today, but the first will be last in the world to come. And those who cling to identity lies will be easy cases in the last judgment because their language of self-assertion is the rejection of their identities as sinners. Whatever we have, whenever we think we've won or gotten power over this world, those things that we have won are perfectly useless and powerless in the next. And if you're playing this game of fame and fortune and pleasure and striving to outdo your neighbor by elevating your desires, you're shoveling dirt out of your own grave. 
As Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a strange term. Mammon is the ego in all its baubles. Money, sex, drugs, power, diplomas. In particular, mammon often means wealth. We are all about the mammon, if that's what it means. It is fitting that Ben Franklin is on the $100 bill as he is now the symbol of the, the Benjamammon. He's the idol of those seeking the Benjamins, the $100 bills, the graven image that everyone is serving. And when we are serving ourselves, we are serving our sins. And this alone tells the tale. If any political issue concerns you more than the person of Christ, you have completely missed the message of Christ. He is the message. If you want to see some uh, kind of sin erased through political action, then you don't understand what sin is or that you are a sinner yourself. The language of Babel is the language of competition and the elevation of the self over God. We know what God's rules are. We have his commandments. We can follow them or reject them. Now, conservative Christians want to thump the commandments and the liberal Christians forget that sin exists altogether. And what are they all arguing about? You see signs like, stand for the flag and kneel for the cross, or uh, the other side has, love is love. Uh, neither of those are in the Bible. Neither of those. God is over all things, and God is love. These equally empty platitudes of the political world from the left and right have no meaningful grasp of Christianity as they ignore Christ and ignore the spiritual battle entirely. What I've learned is that you can wear a cross and have no idea who Christ is. And I've learned that you can also call others scriptural cherry pickers while holding a basket of pick cherries yourself. Because in my reading, Christ does not endorse America, nor does he endorse greed, nor does he endorse racism, nor does he endorse same-sex mar same marriage, nor does he endorse carving up your body, nor does he endorse Pontius Pilate's language that states what is truth. What he endorses is chastity, marriage between a man and a woman, obviously, humility, compassion, obedience, patience, and charity. And he utterly rejects sin and all self-serving motives. As the incarnation of the living God, he is the truth. If you cannot see this, then you may not know him as well as you think and ask for help to get there. Go to God's information booth, otherwise known as prayer, because unless you come to know Jesus, you will not know the truth, and without him you cannot fight the spiritual combat. You just can't. You can get, you can get and win all you want, get all the laws passed through Congress you think will save the world, but if you are not rooted in Christ, you will lose your soul. And once you do come to know him, the experience and toys you desire here in this world will seem like trifles. They become trinkets from gumball machines once you compare them to the value of faith granted from God. Worthless trifles will be set aside just as Peter set aside the largest catch of fish he ever had and dropped the nets to follow Jesus. So this goes for whatever, whatever you're seeking, whatever exotic sexual fix you think is going to cure your loneliness or whatever desire to own the latest Tesla or whatever whiskey you need to put down tonight uh, to sleep. Those idea, ideas will seem like distant memories of a childish phase of life. What once made you proud will suddenly be embarrassing, and you will laugh at how you idealize the wants of the caterpillar after you are flying as a butterfly. You thought the creeping, crawling phase was the end, 
and whatever you got while struggling like an inchworm was all there was. And then you learn that you were far too easily pleased. As C.S. Lewis pointed out in The Weight of Glory, he said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So before you start defending that sin you love the most, like getting high or having one night stands, read the Gospels again. You want the wrong things. Remind yourself what Jesus endorsed. Humility before God. Serving the poor, healing the sick, partaking in the sacraments, and obeying God's law, including and especially one marriage in this life between a man and a woman. So take up your cross and follow him. That means to endure the struggles and burdens and problems of your life, not to affirm your problems as your identity. Our crosses are made to be carried, not reinterpreted as virtues and carried as trophies. Your cross can become a gift, but only if it is carried with him. This ancient language of Babel is what we still speak today. It is the language of twists and turns like Odysseus, who lies and cheats and pillages his way through the Greek epic to get what he wants in all cases. It is the language of me first, of taking what I please, of justifying my desires, of shaping God to fit my sins. When speaking that language, I am the potter on the wheel, not the pot. I'm playing God, but we are not God. I cannot fit the, shape the world to fit my desires. It doesn't work like that. The reason that Pentecost marked a new day in the world is because from Babel onward, God confused the language and scattered the cultures of the world. Literally or metaphorically, this is important. The various cultures could not coalesce into a sin-rejecting juggernaut, but they were still competing and scrapping for pieces of this world. The language was still competition, but the death match was happening in the ponds, not in the ocean. So when Peter stepped out on Pentecost and spoke to the people in Jerusalem, everyone understood him. The apostles all started speaking and the people of all languages understood. Why? How? How did they understand? Again, literally or metaphorically, it works either way. Their message was getting through. Their message was heard. And what was that message? In Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, he says, Jesus the Nazarene was a man commended to you by God with mighty deeds, wonders, and signs, which God worked through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the set plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed, using lawless men to crucify him. God raised this Jesus. Of this we are all witnesses. Exalted at the right hand of God, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured it forth as you both see and hear. God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So was it the words themselves or was it the change in Peter and the apostles that was seen? Was it the message they saw as they lived it out in their lives or was it heard by language? 
as God briefly unscattered the tongues of people. Somehow I think it was something bigger than a Google Translate. I don't think it was only hearing the words. The language of Babel was that of competition and ego, and the language of Peter was the opposite. His message was the unbabel. He gave the world a non-compete agreement that you could follow through Christ. There was a way out of the fighting pit, of the one-upmanship, and it could finally end. There was a way to live that didn't require all of the fake nonsense and puffery that we are used to living among. The reason Peter's message was fluent to all observers is because the non-compete clause was given to us all to stop fighting. And that is what we all want, to stop competing with one another. We want peace. We want rest. We want healing. We're tired of being offended and wanting revenge. When Jesus appeared to the apostles, his first words were, Peace be with you. He gave it right then and there. Peace. All goodness and rest comes from a life in Christ, not through our own efforts to win or achieve. Peace does not come through our instinct or through our competitive culture and not via coercive policies. There is only one way to heaven, and Jesus showed the way. He plowed the way to daylight through this blizzard called life. Still, for the science-minded, how could they really understand what Peter was saying? How do you get past this miracle on the Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost? It's, it's too miraculous to conceive as possible. If, it's too, if you feel it's too miraculous, I would just ask, just ask that you say, God, help me believe. But I would also say, you can understand this story of how Peter talked to everyone. You can understand it without it even being a miracle. Here's the thing. Did the listeners of Peter even need to hear the words? Because when someone is free, can you not tell just by seeing them? When a child starts playing or singing or dancing, does it matter if you are the same nationality or speak the same language as that child? No. Any English-speaking person can interact with a Chinese, a Spanish, or a Kenyan child and see the innocence and joy in the child. The listeners who heard and saw Peter could see it on his face. They could tell by how he was preaching because he was open. He was no longer hiding. The fig leaves were dropped. The fear was gone. The pretenses were gone. The fake promises of a salesman were nowhere to be found. He had returned to the faith of a child. And this is why Babel is the opposite of Pentecost. God withdrew from selfish people at Babel, but he enkindled the fire of his love at Pentecost. Babel turned the world gray, and the color came back at Pentecost. It's like the horrible movie Pleasantville, except in Acts of the Apostles, it's not the embrace of sin that adds co color to the world. It's the conquering of sin. And as I've said before on, these, on this series, the only way to heaven is through the cross. You can't avoid it. You must carry it. You must carry your own cross and voluntarily let your own ego be crucified upon it. And then you will be like a child, like Peter, closer to Jesus. If you follow him all the way, all the way, you will be a brother of Christ and a son of God. That's a powerful thing to realize. When you observe the angry banter online today, if you can stand it, take notice that the person of Jesus is rarely mentioned 
unless it's to score political points. A lot of us have turned Jesus into a basketball or a weapon. We've taken Jesus' non-compete clause and used him as a club to compete. It's the opposite of what he told us to do. We have to surrender to him, surrender the need to win. Do you need to comment on that news story? Do you need to reply? When they come for you and accuse you and slander you, do you need to win? Jesus, using his non-compete, shows us that you do not need to reply and you do not need to get angry. In Isaiah 53, though harshly treated, he submitted and did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. And this is forever the permanent danger of shifting our focus from Christ as the fully divine and fully human second person of the Holy Trinity. The minute you look away from that, you will sink. You will return to the pit, gladly jumping in and entering the fray. We just can't resist the language of Babel. And we take up jockeying for position because we fear for our ego, our reputation, our loss of self. We think somehow this time it will be different. But when the fear strikes us, we begin to sink. So let's go through this the same question we often do on this podcast. We have to go over it again. We must. And because it's why the website is named what it is. Why did Peter sink? It's because he looked away from Jesus. And how was he saved? He asked for help. He said, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why do we doubt? Why did we doubt? Why did we jump into the fight again? Why do we do what we do? We do it because we think, I got this. We assume superiority. We want power and honor. But let it be known, I ain't got nothing. Jesus is seated in heaven waiting. He's not cheering for my ego. He's not waving my flag or the flag of America. I think uh, did, maybe we did all fool ourselves into thinking that it was Jesus that helped Thomas Jefferson craft the declaration. I think we did fool ourselves. This city on a hill tale is an invention. America does not have divine guidance. It's time to let go of that fairy tale. Thomas Jefferson was a deist that completely denied the divinity of Christ. George Washington was also. Do we imagine that Jesus got us walking on water like a toddler in 70, 1776 and then we just learned to do miracles without him while we still kept slaves and were westward hosts steamrolling the natives? Does any of that sound like the work of Jesus Christ that he performed in this world? I don't think so. Now, I don't deny that there were many, many Christians in America, but the founders were not. The greatest fib of America is that this is a Christian nation. As it wasn't in the beginning, it is not now, and it never will be. There are individuals who are Christian, but this is not a Christian nation. There has always been many, many Christians in America, and that is why the nation has had success. But as for the founders and their ideals, it is a foundation built on sand from the Enlightenment. The fact that Lincoln and many presidents were believers does not mean that Christianity ruled in Washington. 
without millions of Christians as bedrock, the deist ideas collapse, as we are now seeing happen with liberalism and modernism. It was families rooted in Christian values that provided the glue the entire time. It was families, black, white, or in between. It was not politicians or businessmen. If anything, the wealthy used Christians as instruments to get what they wanted, because after all, God helps those who help themselves. That's Ben Franklin. Following God's will is a goal of Christians, and nefarious forces are always at work to use and abuse that. And those who help themselves throughout history have looked at other people, especially Christians, as useful tools like shovels to be used for their own projects, not as tools to carry out God's will. And not everything America has done is evil, and not everything it has done is good, but America is not the marker or sign of the last days any more than was Imperial Japan or the Spanish Empire. We are in the final age, the Messianic age, and it was not called or named the American age. It's just called the Messianic age. Unhitch your nationalism from the message of Christ, otherwise you are taking up Jesus's non-compete clause and using it as a club. Jesus is not cheering for America any more than he is the Dallas Cowboys. He's cheering for us to carry out his great commission to spread the word, to feed the poor, to heal the sick, to believe, to keep his commandments, to be joyful sinners, and to move toward holiness by keeping practice of the sacraments. Jesus rules over all of the nations, all of the powers and principalities of this world, which includes the United States. This current moment is just the latest empire in a long list of empires. We are just another Babylon, another Rome. They all crumble. But God's kingdom is here and being slowly worked out. The slowness is the hard part since we are accustomed to getting what we want immediately. We think the world is under our control, but it's not. And we tire of waiting to help God help us. We want, we want it now. We want it now. And that's how we fall into the water. That's how a nation sinks. We get cocky and forget our frailty. We get rich and comfortable. What happens to nations happens to the church too, just as it does for individuals, just as it did for Peter on the water. There is no way to be saved but through him, with him, in him, in the person of Christ. The focus must remain on him. He is the question. He is the answer. He is the truth, he is the way, the light, and the life. Neither ourselves nor the constitution of this country can save you. Science can't save you. Money can't save you. Only he can. We are the people of a lost empire that thinks it has been found. Individuals within this empire have been found, but the empire itself is foundering. The whole structure has been long held up by believers, but their arms are fewer now and fatigue is setting in. Shortly after World War II, somewhere in the 1960s, the soul of the nation turned away from God and then the fall began. As we begin to value sex, drugs, and the college experience more than the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all authority began to tumble. As Satan said in Paradise Lost, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And that became a national motto, and adolescence started to creep way past its sell-by date. 
duty was replaced with honor for the derelict. Now we move into a last phase where the drunk sailors are in the command center guiding us to destruction, assuring us that desires alone make for a meaningful identity, and they are assuring us of this even as we run aground. But, again, all is well. Put it this way, thank God we can get lost. Part of God's plan is to find the lost sheep. If we follow Jesus' own ministry on earth, he plays the shepherd the entire time, right to the last moments on the cross when he converts the penitent thief. Getting lost is the only way to get found. So there is much hope yet. God's plan exceeds our understanding, but he has allowed billions of people to stray. Could his plan for the smartphone to be to reach every last soul on earth? Many end times writers like to focus on Matthew 24, 14. And that line goes like this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Since God is outside of space and time, he moves salvation history along on his schedule, not ours. Just as Abraham did not begin forming a nation until languages and cities were established, and Jesus did not come until writing had advanced considerably, who is to say that God's allowance of our scrolling on our phones is not the next phase of his plan? Surely most people today have heard of Christ, but not everyone has. And what better way to reach all people than through a common language, or better yet, a common protocol like HTTP? It's entirely possible that DARPA and Tim Berners-Lee and Steve Jobs were unlikely instruments of God, and by serving themselves, aka mammon, they will end up serving God. Of course they will. That's how it works. In the meantime, confusion spins our people around as we seem to we seem to be directing our lives and our children's lives with a misaimed compass. To realize that the needle has been sitting next to a magnet and steering us off course is terrifying, but it's a relief to even discover that we're going in the wrong direction because then at least we can take action to change the course. And once you finally turn, you can find true north. A person who strays can be saved. That is the lesson of the prodigal son. A nation that gets lost can also be born again. The word blessing means to be kneeled. So we should keep saying over and over, God bless America and God please bless me. Because a kneeling is exactly what we need to find peace, to put us in right relationship with God. And how is that to be done? It's the same way it was done to the Roman Empire and every other empire. The nation will be exercised when people turn to God. And when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he meant it for you, not for an abstract thing like America or China. He meant it for each person to make that choice. God's salvation plan continues in ways that we cannot understand, but we know what to do. We need to believe. We need to surrender our lives to God and be joyful and keep his commandments and give money to the poor and to the church. Forget about the evil that others are selling and focus on the words of Jesus. Focus on all of his words, not just the ones that you like, the entirety of the Gospels, 
even the ones that are difficult, especially those. And here's what we have to do. We have to love God. We have to love others. We have to be joyful. We have to volunteer. We have to read the gospel. We have to tell others about it. We have to read the catechism. We have to go to confession, go to mass, kneel, receive the Eucharist, and repeat. All right, that wraps up our Babel series. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it was a long one. Thanks for always listening. I appreciate it. Uh, any feedback and leaving reviews on the, on the various sites. Thanks, and I'll see you at the next episode.